Hi, and welcome to Screens in Focus podcast, where we share and connect as we spotlight our favorite shows and movies. I'm Brittany. I'm Diana. And this is episode 17. Today, we'll be reviewing season three, episodes 15 and 16 of The Walking Dead with the lens of vulnerability. Before we dive in, how are you doing today, Brittany? I'm okay. I'm still thinking about that Walking Dead news that oh Andrew Lincoln is leaving The Walking Dead. <laughs> How are you feeling about that? Uh, totally gutted. Yeah. I am so devastated. I don't know how it will go on. I, I guess it could. It really depends on the writers and everything, but... I just love Andrew Lincoln as Rick, and I love Rick, and I really feel he's the anchor of the show. And I mean, so... Yeah, we followed him from season one, and I just don't like when shows do that, when they continue on without the main character. It seems really... It just doesn't... It won't be the same. There's No, no it won't be. It won't. So, it's just... I wish they would end it on a good note. Like, if he wants to leave, why don't you yeah. end it? Nine years is a really long time for a show, so right. why not? Right. So, I don't know. They feel they have more stories to tell, or they just want their job, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Which I get that too, I guess. But yeah, I don't know how. It will be a different show. It Mm -hmm. has to be, right? I mean, there's no way, because Rick is the show for the last eight seasons. We're always waiting for it to be about him Mm -hmm. and whoever he is with. You know, with Carl being dead, his purpose is kind of gone Yeah, in a way. I mean, sure, he has other things going on in his life, but that has been his driving force through all the seasons so totally i guess we'll see yeah (laughs) and i'm still you know really thinking about roseanne show too and i'm really bummed about the show but i it makes total sense and i just feel bad for the other actors and the crew and the writers and everybody else and it's just a big bummer and i hopefully it's a big awakening for her and Me what too. she says. So, but you know. they're thinking of doing a spinoff with, I without her, her, but I don't think they should because she still gets money that right, way. Right, that's what I was going to say. She <laughs> Because she created right. the characters and the show, mm-hmm. so she would still Why not create a whole new show with the actors? So, yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Yes, we shall see. Okay, Brittany, let's do our recaps. Okay, so season three, episode 15, This Sorrowful Life. Rick asks Merle for his help to deliver Michonne to the governor. So Merle begins to bring her to Woodbury. However, he changes his mind and lets her go. He goes rogue to attempt to assassinate the governor, but he fails and the governor kills him, turning him into a walker. Daryl finds him and has to put him down and is heartbroken, of course. And meanwhile, Rick tells a group about the deal with Michonne, and he apologizes for keeping it from them, and he says that they're democracy now and they need to act like it. Season 3, Episode 16, Welcome to the Tombs. The pitiful, sadistic, psychopathic governor beats Milton, then stabs him and throws him in a cell with Andrea to die and turn and rip her skin off. The governor loads his troops and heads to the prison where Rick and the group are able to confuse and ambush them. The troops retreat, which pisses off the governor, and he shoots them all dead, except for Martinez and Schumpert, and drives off with them to an unknown place. He is unaware Karen's alive. In the woods are Herschel, Beth, Carl, and Judith. 
One of the governor's young men runs into them, and Carl shoots him, saying he had no other choice, even though Herschel doesn't see it that way. <laughs> Rick, Michonne, Daryl go to Woodbury to end it with the governor, but find what he has done to his people and end up bringing Tyrese, Sasha, Karen, and Woodbury residents back with them to the prison. Okay, Brittany, let's talk about the theme of vulnerability. Okay, and I want to talk about how the overall group at the prison is seemingly vulnerable, but they astoundingly overcome this adversity for the moment. So there's a shot in episode 15 where the camera pans out after Rick tells the group that this is a democracy. And we see how alarmingly few members there are in this family compared to the 70-ish Woodbury residents. Pragmatically speaking, Rick's group is gravely outnumbered. And I guess this is why it makes it so satisfying when they do end up driving the governor's soldiers out of the prison with their surprise attack, because they are the underdog in this situation. And I think it's human nature to want the underdog to succeed, to Mm -hmm. rise above. In my household, we're passionately sports-oriented, and when there's two teams that are not our favorites in the finals, we almost always root for the underdog. I think this is for a few reasons. We could see some of ourselves in them, someone who possibly hasn't made a declarative statement to the world, proving our value or proving our worth. Nothing feels better than winning when the odds are stacked against you. Sometimes we just want the world to be fair, so rooting for that underdog helps us make it so. Alternatively, there's this idea of schadenfreude, which means that we gain pleasure from seeing the misfortune of others. That sounds bad, but it's the sentiment that when the Patriots are continuously winning Super Bowls, you start to root against them. (laughs) When we root for the underdog, we're vulnerable alongside them. And when they experience an unexpected failure, we do too. And I think that's the beauty of connecting to shows, movies, books, basically all art and sports. I really enjoyed the fact that the prison group was so visibly vulnerable, yet they won this battle against Woodbury. It's a quite relatable, formative tale about vulnerability, community, and overcoming adversity. You have to be a little vulnerable to accomplish anything worthy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it means we're hopeful if we're willing to be vulnerable. That is so true, Brittany, and so right. I'm glad you brought that up. I want to say first off that I loved both these episodes and so much happened. Mm -hmm. But I will start talking about Andrea. She is highly vulnerable strapped down in the torture chair, all bloody and worn. The governor comes in with Milton, and she tells them she overheard them talking and tells the governor that no more of his men need to die. Things can work out. Here she is thinking of other people and not herself. Andrea really bugged the crap out of me most (laughs) of her time on The Walking Dead. But she totally redeems herself to me through these episodes. The governor ends up showing all his true colors, as a callous, cruel sociopath that he is and tells Milton to kill her. Milton turns the knife on the governor, but of course the governor easily overpowers him and stabs him several times in the stomach and says, now you are going to die and turn and tear the flesh from her bones. He locks Milton in the room with Andrea. Andrea tries to get the pliers with her feet so she can break free. She sees that Milton has died and he turns and she is able to finally break free as Milton attacks her. 
In the end, Michonne, Rick, and Daryl find her, and she is bit. I had hoped she were able to fight off Milton, but she was left so vulnerable that it wasn't possible, and I felt so bad for her. Yeah, that's true, and I really do admire Andrea at mm-hmm. this point, and I think she went out like a hero, so mm-hmm. little uh, moment of silence for Andrea. <laughs> Oops, I messed it up. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we don't get to say Andrea anymore? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, at least I said it right, you so did. yeah. Okay, I got it right by the end. <laughs> anyway, I also want to talk about Woodbury on the flip side of being vulnerable, so ironically the Woodbury soldiers are super vulnerable along with the rest of Woodbury they are the favorite to win this war like I said since Rick and company are the underdogs and it's interesting to me that they put their faith in the governor but by doing this they're willingly making themselves vulnerable without knowing it however they don't see that side of him that scares us There's no huge presage sign that indicates they are in danger, that they're in company of a serial killer, essentially. (laughs) They only see someone who gave them another chance at a meaningful life after the outbreak. Of course they trust him. But I'm thinking of how this relates to us. Trust and vulnerability are a huge part of our daily life. I think that we overlook sometimes how much trust it takes to be part of our society. We trust websites to pay our bills online safely. We trust our food to be cooked correctly when Mm -hmm. we go out to eat. We trust that people will stop at a red light. (laughs) We trust the police to protect us and to help us when we're in trouble. We trust our workplaces to be safe spaces. We trust our government, for the most part, in updating, creating, and bringing up policies and issues that keep us safe, healthy, and happy. There are so many solid, provable instances that show that our systems in place are working, and we don't even give it a second thought. So by putting our trust in people and these systems, we make ourselves especially vulnerable. But what makes us so unwary? The governor has proved to protect the people of Woodbury, so they don't fear him. They fear what's outside of those walls of Woodbury. I'm sure the soldiers never thought the governor would gun them down (laughs) in a fit of uncontrollable rage, but he did. I never realized how systematic trust is currently in our society, and I think that when it's broken and called out, like with the Me Too movement or March for Our Lives or Black Lives Matter, that's why it feels so disruptive. We're all comfortable until something abrasive makes it not so. And if it wasn't something that directly happened to us, we don't question it. Mm-hmm. Then we're compelled to take a long, hard look at what's really going on. So just that whole idea of vulnerability really struck me mm-hmm. in these two episodes. And I felt like I could relate to it a lot. Oh, my God. You brought up so many good points. It's <laughs> so true. Yeah. We are very comfortable until something happens. Right. I mean, maybe it's good because then it just kind of pushes us to be uncomfortable and to understand that life isn't just how we see it. Like, there's so many different Mm -hmm. ways that people are living, and I don't know. It's just really interesting to me. It is. Yeah. Very good point. (laughs) 
Okay, I am going to talk about Michonne and her vulnerability in these episodes. With her calm, kick-ass attitude, you (laughs) wouldn't have a clue. First off, Rick is contemplating if they should give up Michonne for the sake of the group and talks with Merle about doing the deed. She doesn't even know how vulnerable she is at this point. Merle ends up tricking her by letting her think they are going to the tombs to clear walkers, but he knocks her out, ties her up, and takes her for the exchange. While traveling on foot, Merle tells her about the governor's proposal and that this is his chance to save Daryl and the others. She tells him he has a conscience, and he says no, he has killed 16 people, but she makes him realize that he hadn't done that until after he met the governor. They stop near a motel. He tethers her to a post while he hotwires a car and the alarm goes off and the walkers start to swarm them. And I am panicked because (laughs) Michonne doesn't have a weapon and is tied up. She is in a highly vulnerable (laughs) state. But she dodges those walkers and she kicks them off her and finally Merle gets up and shoots them. Thank goodness. It was intense. In the car, she tells Merle, they can go back. The group will take them. At that point, he cuts her loose. He lets her out and says there is something he needs to do. Oh, my God. Michonne is out of imminent danger and Merle is on a mission. Okay, Brittany, what other things did you notice in these episodes? Well, first, I just want to apologize to listeners because it's freaking Grand Theft Auto outside (laughs) of our recording studio. So just FYI. But other things I noticed, hmm, well, I was trying to be sympathetic during that Carl and Rick antagonizing confrontation, but I could not help but be aggravated. In the first season, Diana, you mentioned that Rick and Lori didn't want Carl to become callous, Mm -hmm. which is great. But unfortunately, at this point in this episode, he certainly has. He shoots a kid point blank when he was handing his gun over and claims it was self-defense. I was shook like that Mr. Krabs meme, okay? (laughs) (laughs) The hell? So he tells Rick, you didn't kill Andrew and he came back and killed Mom. You were in a room with the governor and you let him go. And then he killed Merle. I did what I had to do. Now go so he doesn't kill any more of us. The hell? My son is not talking to me like that, okay? I understand that Carl is a preteen in the zombie apocalypse. He got lots of issues. I get it. But no, no, no. I cannot condone this predictable teenage attitude and his repugnant actions. It felt really disconcerting to me. I know. I I don't like the way he talked to Rick at all. Um, but I will say that when that guy kid was looking at him I thought for a moment I wasn't sure either Mm. I remember the first time I watched it I'm like wait because he looked a little just slightly shady and so Mm -hmm. I kind of gave a little bit of a benefit to Carl for reacting because he thought I don't know if we can trust this this guy because I remember when I originally watched it I thought Herschel's take on it wasn't 100% accurate. He, the look on his eye, wasn't sure what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. But I see how Carl read it, and then I see how Herschel read it. The only thing I didn't like was how he talked to his dad about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't like yeah. the defensive attitude. Yeah. That's all. 
I just feel like he was like putting his dad down, saying like all these bad choices you made. But one, Rick didn't know. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. he yeah. didn't know what was going to happen with his decisions. He was making the best decisions that he could right. at that time. It just... He was blaming all those things. deaths on yeah. Rick. And it's right. like, and how are you going to put that on your dad? Right. Exactly. That was so. the hard part. No, 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 Carl. <laughs> okay. So I am going to talk about Merle because I feel he did so much in these this episode. So... I felt that Merle really came through for the group because he was able to reevaluate his life and find redemption. I find it interesting in the beginning of the episode when Rick asks him to help deliver Michonne to the governor, he asks, who knows? And Rick tells him that only Herschel and Daryl know and besides him. And he says, oh, I'm in the inner circle, feeling a little special, which he probably never felt before. I also liked his conversation with Carol about how he has seen that she has changed and she is a late bloomer. And Carol says, maybe you are too. Then there was the exchange with Merle and Michonne and he listened to her and what she had to say and realize what he had to do, which is to kill as many of the governor's men as he can and then kill the governor. And then with Merle and the governor, Merle gets to the meeting spot and is able to lure walkers to the area and get the governor's men to fight against them, not realizing Merle is shooting at them. He takes down about seven men before the governor joins in on killing the walkers. At one point, the governor is vulnerable and Merle takes aim, but Ben gets in the way and Merle shoots him instead. They realize what Merle is doing and they get him and they beat him bad. And the governor takes over and beats him viciously and chokes him and bites his fingers off. And then he takes aim and Merle says, I ain't gonna beg. I ain't begging you. Basically, the same words he said in the rooftop in speaking to God. The governor backs up while pointing at him and with no emotion says no and shoots him. Then at the end with Merle and Daryl, Daryl goes looking for Merle only to find him dead and has become a walker. Walker Merle goes after Daryl and Daryl stabs him repeatedly in the head as he sobs. I thought that was indicative of how mad he was for a few for a few reasons. One, because he didn't want Merle to go off on his own to do this, right? Like he was yeah. upset because he, the odds are stacked against him. He, I don't think he would have won. But... Also, he's probably mad that Merle did something like this, and he always knew Merle was capable of doing something good mm-hmm. and being good. And he's like, why did you choose to do this now? Like, when I really wanted my brother back. I know. When I really, really needed you with me. Mm-hmm. So, he, at first I thought, wow, you're stabbing your brother a lot. But then I figured that's just all his pent-up frustration yeah. about, you know, losing him and then realizing, you oh, know, his brother did redeem himself, but it's kind of too late because he couldn't be with him now so mm-hmm. i thought that was really sad i think he says that the last words he say it says to him he kind of touches his back and he says i just want my brother back yeah so i know i'm sad i wanted to mention that the episode sorrowful life was directed by greg nicotero and it was written by scott gimple and was critically acclaimed as one of the best episodes in season three and that kudos went to the performances of Merle, Glenn, Michonne, and Daryl. 
and that Robert Kirkman states that Merle's death was really about activating Daryl in an interesting way that will pay off in season four. Hmm. I found that all very interesting, and I love finding those yeah that information about certain episodes. Yeah, I think that's really cool, too. And another thing I want to bring up is that when Rick first asks Merle to help them deliver Michonne to the governor, and Merle says, you know, when we used to go out on runs, he'd bash somebody's skull, slash somebody's throat, and he said, never waste a bullet. I always thought it was just an excuse. That line felt really frighteningly indicative of the governor's true character. Like, he's just killing people for fun, right? Like we say, he's a serial killer. I thought, wow, I wonder what the governor was like before this world. Did he always have violent tendencies, this anger, this sadistic nature? I know that the governor tells Milton he wasn't like this when his daughter was alive. But what's the worth in your character and your morality if you're only principled for the people that you love? I think it's great, and most people do act in a way because they are inspired or motivated by their kids, especially. I understand that. But I personally believe it's not worth shit unless you can be that person for yourself first. Mm -hmm. If those people leave and you end up being a worse version of yourselves, I don't think that's what they would have wanted. And it's not, you're doing a disservice to yourself, too. Mm -hmm. So if your character and integrity relies upon the presence of others... I just think that makes your character questionable to begin with. Those are really good points, Brittany. Um, I, oh my gosh, I really love Glenn and Maggie so much. And I love that Glenn defended Maggie and told Daryl that he loves her more than anything. Mm -hmm. I loved his talk with Herschel about not knowing how much time any of them have and what the value of the watch really means. And he talks with him about marrying Maggie and he gets Herschel's blessing. (laughs) And, you know, Herschel's quick to give his blessing because he just adores Glenn also. And then Glenn finds a ring on a walker, (laughs) chops the walker's fingers off, takes the ring. And then later on, he gives it to Maggie. And, you know, they don't even say anything. He just puts it in her hand and she says, yes. And I just love them. Yes, totally. Oh, really quick thing. I just realized who Karen is. I didn't pay much attention to her before now. And she plays an important role in the next season. Who is she? But, you know, Tyrese's girlfriend. I thought Karen is Ben's wife. No, she's the one who died. Oh, that one, yeah. So Karen is a different person. Yeah, because I thought her name was Karen too. Oh, you're right. I thought I absolutely thought Karen's the same person, but I thought oh Donna. Name. Oh my gosh. I'm oh, it's Donna. Donna. Whoops, sorry. Yeah, but I would have. I was confused about that too. Okay. But yes, this Karen ends up being. Who? Um, I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm listening oh. to the motorcycle. I'm trying to think, quick, what's a movie with motorcycles in it? <laughs> the Sons of Anarchy. That's what it is about here. Anyways, um, but yeah, Karen ends up being Tyrese's girlfriend. Oh, I didn't even remember that. Wow. Yeah. That's well, crazy. she's the one who ends up getting sick when they get the flu and all that oh. and getting. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. So anyways, but that's who Karen is. And huh. so I, I, like I said, I just thought, oh, she's a surviving person when I originally watched it. But now knowing what happens with Karen in the future seasons, I'm like, oh, this is where Karen comes <laughs> to be. Cool. I didn't you even know. notice that. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. We are at our Why We Love Rick segment. So Brittany, why do you love Rick? I love Rick, and I'm just going to say everything he says because it's just too good to not Mm -hmm. say it. So I'm just repeating this from the episode. I'm not going to say too much of my own thoughts. But I just love Rick because of his speech at the prison to his family. He says, I was wrong not to tell you, and I'm sorry what I said last year, that first night after the farm. It can't be like that. It can't. What we do, what we're willing to do, who we are, it's not my call. It can't be. I couldn't sacrifice one of us for the greater good because we are the greater good. We are the reason we're still here, not me. This is life and death. How you live and how you die is not up to me. I am not your governor. We choose to stay, we stick together, we vote. We can stay and we can fight or we can go. And I just think it takes a great leader to reflect, apologize, lay everything out on the table and adjust accordingly. Why do you love Rick, Diana? First off, I just want to say when he said that, I was like so moved and it was and thinking about now him not being there, I'm like who else could ever say those words? Right. Only his character and him as an actor. I mean, because otherwise it might be cheesy. You're like, oh, right. You think you're the leader? I don't know. (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) Anyways, I love Rick because he's always learning and trying to be the best dad and leader he can be. He is not just stuck on one thing. He realizes he makes mistakes and he really tries to look at everything and figure out what is best. I try to do this in my own life, to learn from others and situations and being open to change or different approaches. That is what I love about life. Things are not constant and you need to adapt. He goes to the prison to finish off the governor and his army, but he sees what the governor has done to his people and changes his mind and is vulnerable when he puts his gun down to approach Tyrese and Sasha. He ends up packing up the people at Woodbury and takes them to the prison. When I first saw this, I wasn't sure I'd like that decision, but watching it this time, I felt it was totally the right decision. I think he did this partially because of what happened with Carl and him shooting that boy. He knows he needs to show Carl that you have to trust people sometimes. You have to work with people and rebuild. Rick is reassured he made the right decision when he looks up where he usually sees visions of Lori and he doesn't see any visions. He just gives a subtle smile and it's perfect. Okay, Brittany, what are you currently watching? So for TV shows, there's this weekly series on Netflix about different topics like monogamy, DNA, etc. And it's called Explained. I think there's like three or four episodes. I consider myself a passionate lifelong student, so this is really fun for me. I know that you're watching this, but I also watched The Bachelorette. (laughs) I love Becca. I have conflicted feelings about this show because it truly is garbage. It's garbage. But I really admire her, so I'm going to keep watching. I'm also still really hung up on the fact that she sent home Grocery Store Joe. (laughs) Girl, you gave up free groceries for life, okay? (laughs) 
I'm also watching the NBA Finals. So the Golden State Warriors are in the NBA Finals and I'm on the edge of my damn seat every game. I love every individual on this team. They are comprised of men of such integrity, honest character, admirable work ethic, and lots of them are family men. Draymond Green is a little hot-headed, but I think that it's not just about your talent, it's also about your emotional intelligence in any work setting to make your team work so well together. I am so excited for them. And no matter the outcome, I'm really proud to be a Warriors fan. We have really great guys and sports is just such a beautiful community. I'm also, I also finished Little Women, which it was on Masterpiece PBS. That's their adaption of the novel by Louisa May Alcott. And I love Willa Fitzgerald, who plays Meg. And she was actually in the MTV show reboot of Scream. And I thought that was good. But it was also cool seeing Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's 19-year-old daughter, Maya. And she played Joe. So I recommend that. I thought it was really sweet. It was a cute adaptation. I also started watching Atlanta. One of our coworkers watches it. So I started watching it. It's a dramedy starring Donald Glover. He's also a writer and director for the show. So this story follows cousins who are trying to navigate the Atlanta rap scene to help out their families and just step up in their lives. As far as movies, I watched Deadpool 2. I like the first movie much better, but I do love Deadpool as a superhero in general. He's edgy, vulgar, not afraid to be meta about anything. <laughs> he talks to the camera. He's freaking funny. I've always been super obsessed with superhero movies, including X-Men, Avengers, and DC Comics. So I'll continue to watch these until the day mm. I die. <laughs> anyway, I recommend for all my fellow comic book lovers... I watched The Fifth Estate. So this is a movie based on Julian Assange and Daniel, the founders of WikiLeaks. And I love Benedict Cumberbatch. So even though this movie wasn't totally amazing, I watched it for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like him too. <laughs> There's also a news story that broke telling us that he saved this delivery man from being jumped by four other guys like they're trying to take his bike. He jumped out of his Uber and fought off these guys. So this man is a superhero Aww, on and off screen. Yeah. So cute. I also watched Thelma, which is a Norwegian supernatural horror film about a woman oh. who falls in love for the first time. And then she realizes she has these crazy powers. And this isn't scary in the way that you like jump at certain moments. It's more haunting. And it leaves you at the edge of your seat. You're waiting to see what will happen next. You're just like, ugh. <laughs> but the actress who plays Thelma did an excellent job. And I highly recommend this film. It kind of seems like the writer slash director whatever is trying to tell us about a coming of age dark superhero story but it goes deeper than your average horror film so i loved it i also watched beatrice at dinner oh and i wanted to watch that i haven't seen it yet it's interesting it's Where's good it on? it's on hulu oh that's why i haven't because i haven't yeah okay so uh, Salma Hayek stars in this uncomfortable dramedy about an alternative healer slash medical practitioner who stays for dinner at one of her clients' homes. And she is the only non-white person there. And we see huge differences in beliefs and lifestyles, even in language and social cues and the things that they talk about. You can see how out of place she feels. So it's interesting. Uh, lastly, I watched Solo, which is the like a pre-story to Star Wars. It's like a side movie, and I thought it was good. Everyone is like 
I mean, I guess it's tanking at the box office, but I thought it was really good. I really love all these Star Wars movies and people are giving it bad reviews, but I think it was great. And I really loved seeing um, Khaleesi in it and uh, Donald Glover's also in it. And mm-hmm. I forget the main guy's name, but they all did a really good job. So yeah. I think it was fun. Well, they had a director, Ron Howard ended up directing it, but I think mm. something that kind of overshadowed it a okay. little bit. But gotcha. I thought it got decent reviews, but maybe not. I think people are just trying to make it bigger than it is, that it's not doing that well in the movie theaters. But there's a bunch of other good movies right now. So it's like, and going to the movies can be expensive for people. So people have to really pick and choose. So I think like we shouldn't read too much into that. Yeah. Still making millions of dollars. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I also watched The Bachelorette, like you said, and I didn't mean to watch it, (laughs) but I did. (laughs) I don't know why I get sucked into these things. So let's see if I keep watching. Um, I also watch World of Dance with J-Lo, Derek Huff, and Neo as the judges. And I really like the show because dancing can be so emotional. And that's what draws me in, anything emotional. So it had a good start. And, um, of course, I'm watching my Real Housewives of New York. And (laughs) right now... Bethany Frankel and Carol Raswell, who were really good friends in the past seasons, are fighting and it's killing me. So I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, my God. So it's, it's, you know, it's a really big riff that's happening now. But I also came upon Cobra Kai, which is a YouTube red show. Um, It's a series and a sequel to the 80s movie Karate Kid. Hmm. It is so cool. This show picks up with the same characters, and here they are 30-something years later, and there's the underdog, Danny LaRusso, and the bully, Johnny Lawrence, and how their lives have played out, and it's been entertaining. And it's funny, because I heard about it on two different podcasts, and they both raved about it, so I had to find it and watch it. And um, also, the teen in this movie is the same actor in Parenthood, the foster kid. Oh! Yeah. So I also um, watched a few more episodes of My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman, and one of the guests was Howard Stern. And I don't know too much about Howard Stern, so it was interesting to hear about his parents and a little bit about his upbringing and growing up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood in middle school. And I can really appreciate his honesty. And he talked about his feud with Letterman and how he was a guy full of rage and he had to go to therapy and how it helped him. And he apologized for the terrible things he said to Letterman and his wife, um, which I thought was just very commendable. And then I watched Letterman's interview with Jerry Seinfeld and I found it so funny. I love Jerry's comedy and I am a huge Seinfeld fan. So he's just so funny and I'd like to see him sometime. But... They also talked about comedy back in the day, and they mentioned Freddie Prinze and about him being the hottest thing at that time, which was interesting to me because I had just listened to a podcast this week with them talking about Freddie. Well, it was with Freddie Prinze Jr., and he was discussing his dad. So they were just really great interviews. I also watched Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, and it was with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and it was fun to watch them. They reminisced about Seinfeld, and they would just laugh, um, uh, you know, just when they looked at each other. And I just love that type of friendship and chemistry. And I, too, had tried to watch Atlanta myself, but 
I couldn't get the first season, and so I only watched, mm. like, the season two, like, the first two episodes, but I'm like, oh, I really feel like I need to go back and watch the original episodes. How are you watching that? On Hulu. On Hulu, too. See, mm-hmm. I guess I need to get to Hulu. Mm-hmm. Um, the only movie I watched is Downsizing with Matt Damon, and I'd like to say I would never downsize. <laughs> I would be too afraid of animals and natural disasters and normal-sized humans. <laughs> anyway, Matt Damon's character, Paul, plans to downsize with his wife, who is played by Kristen Wiig, but she changes her mind at the last minute without him knowing, and the movie follows him as he figures out the meaning of his life in this new world. And the actress, Hong Chow, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but she was the breakout performance in this, and Mm. she was really good. Cool. So, and that was about what I watched this week. Nice. And now we are at the segment, and the award goes to. So, Brittany, what was your favorite moment, character, or quote? So, this goes to Merle, and I'd just like to reiterate everything you said about him earlier. So, his rogue mission to go after Philip was just so astonishingly brave and selfless. I'm not going to say this was out of character, because I truly believe he had this goodness in him all along. I think, like he said, though, it was just easier to be the bad guy and to do the dirty work that no one else would do. And that's how he felt he was proving his worth when people just didn't give him enough credit to do anything else. And I don't think anyone is 100% good or 100% evil or bad. I think that being part of being human are the ebbs and flows of who we are. Our characters always evolving and growing, hopefully. Mm. <laughs> we're not the same people we were when we were 15, 21, 25, 30, 40, whatever. I think Merle had a goal to show everyone at the prison and himself that he could be like them, like Carol said, and choosing the right side and, and doing the right thing, even when it's the more difficult choice. I wish it wasn't the end for him, but I am proud of him for letting Michonne go. Mm-hmm. Daryl knew that his brother died attempting to do something good in the name of Rick's group, and I'm very happy his story ended doing something heroic, even telling the governor he wasn't going to beg for his life. He knew his actions had consequences, but still did this anyway. So I really appreciate that. I totally agree, Brittany. I felt it was a tie between Merle and Andrea. Both were so heroic. Merle showed his other side and felt he really wanted to save his brother any way he could. So he sacrificed himself to give them a chance. And he also acted really different with Michonne. And I didn't hear any racist remarks (laughs) from him. Thank God. And that was so nice. And with Andrea, she was so selfless. When Rick, Michonne, and Daryl find her, she asks about Carl and Judith and asks if everyone is all right. And she says, I didn't want anyone to die. Rick assures her that everyone is fine. Andrea asks for a gun and wants to die on her own terms. Michonne stays with her and we hear a gunshot. Rest in peace, Andrea. You did good. These were great episodes and season three finale, and I loved them. All right, that's our show. Thanks for tuning in. We're grateful you tuned in, and we hope something we said today resonated with you and gave you a chuckle, some happiness, some positivity, or inspiration. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. We would love more members of our TV club. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. We need your feedback. 
We'll be uploading new episodes every Tuesday. Next show will be on Season 4, Episodes 1 and 2. You'll find our blog at the link listed in our description. See you next time. Bye.